Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Tech Against the Illegal Wildlife Trade. Good day, everybody. My name is Louise Taylor. I'm the Asia-Pacific representative at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Welcome to our session today that introduces some of the latest approaches in the technological sphere and how they can be applied to combat the illegal wildlife trade and environmental crime. Just to give a little bit of context to what the speakers will discuss today, the issues of the illegal wildlife trade and environmental crimes more broadly are some of the most problematic and worrying and persistent trends that we see in the world today. G7 ministers earlier this year, and to some extent at COP26 as well, they did recognise the significance of addressing criminal environmental markets as part of efforts to confront the interdependent crises of climate change and biodiversity loss, as they put it. They also went on to acknowledge the illicit threats to nature that the gamut of environmental crimes pose to nature, but also to societies. The Global Initiative's recently launched Organised Crime Index supports this assertion. We monitored the size and impact of a number of different criminal markets across all countries and combined both flora and then fauna markets are some of the most prevalent criminal markets across the globe. At the same time, and especially since the COVID pandemic, we've seen an exponential rise in cybercrime. To some extent, this reflects the broader and generally more positively perceived trend in access to cyberspace. We obviously live in a technological age where global access to electronic gadgets and smartphones continues to rise, fueled by decreasing prices and the expanding reach of the internet. This, of course, brings countless benefits to all of us and to the illicit and to the licit, sorry, economy. But similar advantages have also then been conferred upon the illicit economy, where the conflation of these two cyber trends has meant that the expansion of an online and easily accessible market for illicit wildlife products is virtually accessible to all. It, uh, it not only supplies demand, but then fuels it. New opportunities for advertising and coordinating the movement of wildlife species and products on a global scale emerge every day. So what can we do about it? And are there ways in which we can see technology not just as an obstacle or an enabler of illicit markets, but also as a tool to help us fight them? So we're going to hear from five great speakers today who all try to do this on a daily basis. Each of them will speak for five minutes and then we'll open up to you in the audience for questions, for challenge, for ideas and for additional inspiration. We want to know what you think about these markets, about the work that we're doing and the opportunities and challenges that we're all facing. So when we get to question and comment time, please raise your hand. Uh, in the in the bar below so that we can unmute you to speak and don't be shy uh, we want to hear from you and you can also place questions in the chat as well which we'll try to respond to so first up we have Simone Haysom who will briefly introduce herself and then talk more about these technological challenges and opportunities as we see them in GI talk Simone over to you please thank you Louise it's um, a pleasure to be sharing this work with everyone today. Um, I'm a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. And I've been working on the issue of uh, online uh, um, markets for illegal wildlife products for around three years now. Um, recently, this work has uh, been concentrated in what we call the Market Monitoring and Friction Unit. It's really a team within Global Initiative that is drawing together a range of different skills to 
uh, both approach a problem that has been generated uh, by technical, technological advances and also to concentrate thinking about how to use technology in responding to it. Um, I sometimes tell people that uh, I feel like what we're trying to do is build a sort of decentralized cyborg because we're both working with algorithms and with software apps and tools, but very crucially trying to uh, adjust those based on the expertise of people who understand the specific ways in which specific species are traded or bring in insights from um, responding to other types of cyber-enabled crime. Uh, we really see ourselves as um, a team that is trying to work in partnership and collaboration with a range of different actors to uh, not just generate new approaches, uh, including new tools, but also work out how to get the best out of those tools, how to uh, integrate them into responses which are actually effective at decreasing uh, the amount of um, content that is found on platforms uh, e-commerce and social media platforms that uh, services a demand for illegal wildlife products, um, but also tackles other ways in which uh, the increasing implication of our lives with digital platforms and digital technologies um, have brought to uh, wild uh, brought threats to wildlife. Um, that includes the normalization of the consumption of wildlife by finding it on the same platforms where you're going about. Uh, saying happy birthday to your best friends and um, responding to an event and invitation to also uh, the ways that traders build up um, profiles and uh, cultivate demand. And I often tell people that uh, what we're doing is looking at the ways that uh, firstly mapping illicit flows for, for wildlife and then looking at the ways that they touch down uh, on the internet. And we do that through uh, 3Ds. One of them is disruption. So that's uh, that engagement uh, with people who are responding to the problem. That's the generation of different tools and ways of responding. But it relies on two other Ds, which are uh, really about creating an evidence base that makes that disruption effective. Uh, the first D is data that's big. Um, and for that, we've been using uh, a tool which we call the Cascade um, that has been generated uh, uh, in partnership with the Center for Social Media Analysis. My colleague Theo is going to talk about it in more detail, so I won't, I won't go into that now. Um, but this is a machine learning enabled set of processes that allow us to search for and understand commercial activity related to the illegal wildlife trade online. Um, we use it to generate uh, big data aspects of the evidence base. So very recently, we've published a report on the uh, domestic and regional markets for African grey parrots in Africa, um, which was an attempt to map an emerging market, though what we did find was um, extremely large markets in, in two countries, which uh, uh, have already been developing for some time. Um, and then uh, several places where there were small markets where early intervention could prevent larger markets arising. Uh, in the Pangolin study, which Theo is going to talk about, we've been using uh, that data to understand the weaknesses in supply chains um, that allow illicit products to enter illicit markets. Uh, we use it to assess the scope of established markets and we use it to identify platforms with the highest density of problematic material or prolific traders or key nodes that connect consumers and traders. The second D is deep data. So uh, we've been 
uh, generating uh, a skills base and a, and a body of expertise using uh, open source monitoring, as well as uh, combining uh, big data studies or open source with fieldwork to dig deeper into the ways in which uh, the internet is used to facilitate uh, illegal trafficking of wildlife. That can involve profiling traders using OSINT methodologies uh, or profiling websites or manufacturers. Um, it can involve understanding consumer motivations from uh, understanding uh, conversations that take place in social media and on online subcultures. Um, and it can also mean straightforward monitoring of sites which are not amenable to machine learning processes. It means currently also understanding image-based content uh, and Deb's going to pick up on this, but I think that this is really um, the forefront of the challenge around uh, technical development, because increasingly uh, what monitors see is that um, wildlife content is, is marketed and advertised um, almost solely using images. Um, uh, as an example of what the combination between big data and deep data can pr produce, um, what I'm showing you here is a supply chain that was developed by a partner that we've worked with a lot, the World Parrot Trust, which is in a collaboration um, with ACO, the Association for Countering Crime Online, where we've been uh, putting together examples of how to um, make typologies for supply chains, uh, dividing those supply chains into different phases and giving uh, authorities who might be people working for private sector companies um, where this content is arising uh, or could be law enforcement or could be other civil society monitors um, to say how uh, that particular phase in the supply chain is linked to the use of the digital technology um, and also uh, the extent to which um, that content can be identified as being clearly illegal or not. Um, we've also recently, uh, in August, released guidance um, that was produced in partnership with Legal Atlas. Um, it's a checklist that can be used um, as a tool by responders um, to assess uh, you know, the full range of different laws that could apply to content that's found online um, and help people to identify uh, legal and, and illegal content. Um, we're also going to be um, so releasing uh, guidance around producing these types of typologies, as well as further uh, big data studies using the tool, uh, which help us to develop that evidence base, which then helps us to target um, uh, our guidance, suggestions or tools or, or direct engagement on disrupting illicit flows online. Um, and uh, I'm going to stop there and hand over to uh, the other panelists who are going to be getting uh, into the granular work of how one does that. Thank you, Simon. That's really kind. Um, so now we're going to move to Teo, who's been working with Simon on the issue of pangolins that are being found or parts of uh, derivatives of pangolin that are being found in traditional Chinese medicines um, and how you've used Cascade uh, to support this work. So Teo, over to you, please. Yeah, thank you very much, Simon and uh, Simon and Louise, and um, thank you guys for for joining in for your your interest in our research. So yeah, my name is Theo Clément. I am the I'm I, I'm working with the with the Global Initiative, and I am the lead researcher on a study that looks at online markets for pangolin-based uh, products, uh, especially uh, products that are uh, TCM, so tradi traditional Chinese medicine. So as mentioned by Simon, um, to do this study, 
with you, we've been using a specific software called the Cascade. So it's a machine learning based uh, solution. So it's a, it's a machine learning enabled web scraper that is designed, as mentioned by Simon, already designed and operated by our partner, so the Center for Analysis of Social Media. Um, Cascade acts as a web scraper that uses uh, keywords and search terms to automatically scrape what is technically and legally uh, searchable on the internet, uh, following several rounds of detection or several rounds of uh, searches. It provides us with a list, uh, usually a long list of detections uh, that are likely attempts at selling uh, illicitly um, pangolin-based uh, items. So these detections have been assessed uh, for relevance by human coders. Um, and these first uh, initial detections have been fed back into the cascade, which is able to uh, train classifiers and generate new search terms and new keywords to improve its relevance yield. So after, for this specific study, we had to make three different rounds of detections, uh, which took uh, approximately uh, three months to uh, to end up with a total detection of 4,000 uh, different detections that have been then assessed for, for relevance. Uh, one of the, of the key advantage of the Cascade is that it's platform and language agnostic. So basically, it can work in any language, and it works in almost all platforms that are technically or legally searchable. Uh, in other words, compared to human to human analysis, it's very good at um, looking for stuff where we don't expect to find anything. It, it's really unbiased in the way it's, it's connecting its uh, its searches. Um, so the cascade is operated by CASM, so the Center for uh, Social Media Analysis. But we are able to uh, collect uh, to collect the result from the cascade by using this dashboard that I don't have time to uh, really explain to me in detail, but basically we, we end up with um, this dashboard that helps us collecting, collecting the data, or at least gathering the data. And for this particular TCM, uh, so pangolin-based uh, TCM drug study, we have been searching uh, Chinese and English uh, language websites. We also started to look at Vietnamese websites, but the yields we are not um, sufficient enough for us to uh, provide data for the analysis. Uh, we ended up with uh, 930 relevant detections, so 900 uh, confirmed attempts at uh, trading illicit, uh, illicit drugs, I mean, illicitly trade pangolin-based TCM drugs. Um, these detections has provided us with actionable intelligence on various actors and networks that are ignoring domestic and international laws and regulation against wildlife trafficking, but also, and maybe more important to us, I mean, the scale of the research that was enabled by um, using the cascade provided us information, not only about the actors, but also about the structure of the market uh, in China and, uh, and abroad, including uh, the, the, the key actors, key nodes, the degree of likely illicit trade, uh, et cetera. Um, Following this study, we've established a series of key findings that we think were only uh, uh, possible by using the, the, the a cascade, a machine learning-based methodology. So basically, we've, we've been able to, uh, to 
verify that the Chinese laws that exist to, to verify medicine, that medicine and ingredients are sustainably sourced uh, were almost never uh, observed in online advertisements. There is a very, very high degree, more than 85% of online advertisements that do not respect Chinese laws in Chinese language. Uh, we have identified a new category of actors that are very, um, are very active in this uh, criminal network, which are Chinese agents that are neither supplier nor manufacturer nor uh, consumers, but uh, that act as amplifier and are basically a matchmaker between consumers and producers. And these are not bound by uh, Chinese regulations for the time being. We've identified, of course, numer uh, numerous e-commerce platforms that are advertising for or even manufacturing pangolin uh, company TCM drugs outside of China. We, in particular, identify a California-based company that is manufacturing drug in California using pangolin scales. And uh, we've also established that we have a, a large number of criminal actors that are using various techniques to obfuscate the presence of pangolin scales uh, or other ingredients in the drug they advertise or sell. So we are still um, we are still an analyzing the results, with, uh, and we will be publishing the results of that study uh, likely in the beginning of uh, 2022. Thank you. Um, some very interesting findings that I'm sure people are going to want to interrogate you a bit on further, um, which we're very happy to do. But first, let's hear from Wahoo. Um, so Wahoo has also been working with us uh, here at GI um, from a slightly different perspective in terms of the Indonesian live bird trade and how Facebook uh, acts as a very active market uh, for that. So if I can hand over to you, Wahoo, it would be great to hear from you. Okay, thank you, Luis. Well, uh, hello, everyone. Nice to see you all. My name is Wahyu. You can call me Wahyu. Well, I'm part of the MMSU team that are researching how does the wet life trade manifest on Facebook. With the case study of the Indonesia trade, well, uh, why we did the research in Indonesia? Well, uh, Indonesia is one of the central or the heart of the wet life trade especially in Southeast Asia, and bird species is one of the sought-after uh, species, among other species. And it is well evident that uh, wetlife trade has uh, destroyed many uh, wetlife species, including bird. I always just focus on the, the monitoring of bird trade, especially in the Facebook, because we found that uh, the shift of the trade from open or on on-site market to online market has happened uh, very uh, significantly in the past few decades. So uh, we are looking at the selling and buying groups at Facebook to understand how uh, the how the bird trade manifests on the online platform and why we are focused on uh, Facebook because among other platforms, Facebook is the most popular uh, social media and also a platform where a lot of uh, people are selling illicit or illegal uh, goods, including birds. Well, the key activities of the, our monitoring on Facebook is the first trade monitoring. We search uh, the relevant advertisement through uh, keywords, and beforehand, we identify kind of the spaces that we think they are important to be monitored. And we refer to the Appendix 1 series and also the Indonesian Conservation Law, which uh, 
without how this species is on these two categories. And we focus on the four species that are listed in the appendix one series and also in the conservation law in Indonesia. And we also add one other species, which is the uh, African gray parrot, because we think it is uh, important to our monitoring. Once we got uh, the relevant advertisement, we extract the information for the, for the advertisements, like uh, the identification of the sellers, the detail of the market, the price, key contact, location, and other uh, relevant information. And then, we also monitor the movement of the group because uh, we see that Facebook just implement the shutdown group. So we are trying to understand how the dynamic of the movement uh, among the seller and buyers on Facebook uh, in uh, facing of this shutdown policy. And yeah, this is the result of our monitoring. We monitor from June and September 2021, and we found more than 1,000 advertisements are recorded according to our manual monitoring, with uh, at least uh, 71 groups are monitored. And in terms of the dynamic of the group monitoring, we see that every week, it's about 9.3%. Uh, there is an increased member which is about more than 113 new members uh, in each group. And according to our recorded data, we found more than one, more, um, not only 600 sellers are advertised their birds in the groups. And the group is usually moderated by at least one moderators and commonly uh, two moderators, uh, moderated groups. This moderators has a unique role in the group because they will uh, like create a rules. So the moderators will monitor how group activity and especially this is more, more interesting when uh, they realize that Facebook has implemented uh, the shutdown group shutdown group or certain policy. And these moderators try to uh, manage the group so they can avoid that their group still can be maintained and avoid this shutdown from the Facebook. So yeah, some rules usually created by moderators to avoid this, uh, this shutdown. And in terms of the locations in Indonesia, uh, we found uh, a lot of advertisements coming from people live in Java Island. This is maybe because the Java Island is one of the centers of bird activity, which a lot of people or bird hobbies live in, and also their uh, like uh, cultural sense of the rehoming birds. Sometimes they think that uh, having birds or rehoming birds is one of the social. Uh, social, what is like social culture, and also they have uh, some singing bird competitions that really uh, impact on this bird trade. Yeah. Okay. Focusing on the 
monitoring of the dynamic on Facebook. This group shutdown is really dynamic because you know, like every week or almost everyone, Facebook tries to shut down uh, many groups. And interestingly, once uh, a group is closed by Facebook, uh, many people, or at least the moderators, or may maybe new people, they try to create a new group and they uh, push for people to join in the, uh, in the new group. And this movement is happen regularly. So yeah, although the, first, the, the group has been closed, they create a new group and yeah, happening continuously. And we think this activity kind of like sudden, sudden groups uh, likely not truly really effective to uh, intervene this market. And because they have already now that Facebook imp implements a certain group, so um, many sellers, they try to avoid this one through using a code or uh, just or when they advertise uh, an advertisement, they will only post uh, a single picture with a very short keyword, but this keyword only be understood by the sellers or the buyers or among the group hobbies. Yeah, this is kind of uh, how they reframe the, the text on advertisement. So the Facebook team can't to recognize the group and undetectable. Uh, as the implication, uh, we conclude that this uh, to intervene the online market, especially the trade, uh, it is likely less effective through the shutdown group. But uh, another options may be uh, more effective, like uh, introducing the captive feeding development or other uh, or other intervention alternative. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Wahoo. Great to hear some of your findings there. I know that's been built on a lot of hard work from your side, so thank you for that. Um, we're going on to our final set of panelists now before we then open to questions. And I see that some of these are already popping up in the Q&A, for which thank you. So keep your eye on that, everybody, because there's some interesting questions being asked and answered there. So now I'm going to hand over to Tanya and Deb, who work for Lens Corporation, who are dedicated to ensuring that artificial intelligence is used for artificial intelligence is used for social good. So we can hear a bit more from them on their projects and their work, please. Over to you guys and please start sharing your uh, slides as appropriate. Hi all, very nice to meet you. Uh, thank you, Luis, for the very nice uh, introduction. Um, so yeah, I'm the Bayan uh, CEO at Lens uh, Corporation. And with me, I have my colleague, Tanya. Uh, who's going to talk a little bit uh, more about our solution uh, to this problem. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we at Lens, um, our goal is to build AI artificial intelligence models for social good. Uh, our main mission is to impart uh, trust uh, in AI systems, that is, uh, make these systems be more explainable and transparent to the end user and consumers. Uh, so to this effort, we have three uh, very big, broad uh, schemes of work. One is digital identity for all. Uh, this here, we try to ensure that our systems can provide uh, digital identity to 
um, all uh, spheres of um, humankind, including infants uh, and um, uh, 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 including uh, infants, sorry. Uh, so we also provide uh, digital identity to animals, uh, which is what we're gonna talk about today. And then the third kind of uh, course of action that we follow is uh, forest fire detection using uh, aerial surveillance. Um, so, uh, so yeah, recognition of uh, animals uh, in the wild is critical for understanding the evolutionary processes that guide biodiversity. Uh, researchers may, must be, you know, uh, they must be able to reliably recognize each individual uh, animal in order to observe that the animal's variation within a population, uh, unique appearance-based cues such as body size, presence of scars and marks, and coloring are often used for interim studies, but these attributes are subjective and vary over time. Therefore, they are very unreliable in longitudinal studies, which are necessary for study of long-term population health and behavior group dynamics and heritability and effects of traits. Um, so uh, uh, biologists and uh, anthropologists have started to adopt more rigorous tracking methods for individualizing each uh, animal. Uh, for instance, they have resorted to the use of GPS tags and collars, the two images on the top, as you can see. Uh, while these approaches have been shown to be successful for studying animals uh, and in very various several long-term conservation efforts, they are problematic in a number of ways. First, these devices can be expensive. They can range from 400 to 4,000 US dollars per animal, uh, and they're also very time-consuming to apply. Second, tagging uh, in such manners requires capture of animal, which has demonstrated uh, ne negative effects. It can disrupt social behavior and cause in intense stress, injury, and sometimes uh, they're even fatal to the animal. So our goal here is to uh, find a non-invasive method that can help uh, identify each uh, individual animal while being non-invasive, especially for end already endangered uh, species. So uh, another opportunity for us is to safeguard these endangered primates. Um, uh, this is in the case of the problem, uh, the growing problem of trafficking. So primate trafficking is a booming business in which these animals are captured from the wild for shipment uh, around the globe. Uh, in the case of great apes, for example, it is estimated that 22,000 individuals were lost between 2005 and 2011 uh, due to illegal trade. In contrast, only 27 arrests were made in connection with such trade, indicating that little has been done to solve the problem. Uh, one of the issues with this problem is uh, the lack of evidence uh, to say, you know, this is the actual animal that was illegally traded and captured and so forth. Uh, so if a captured individual can actually be identified, this will provide information about the animal's origin, provide insight into their capture and help us build uh, evidence uh, using imagery uh, to, uh, you know, um, track these uh, illegal wildlife trafficking. So next slide. So uh, we propose a non-invasive uh, rapid and robust uh, solution for tackling this problem. Uh, we are designing a smartphone application. Uh, we have demonstrated that our approach is effective against illegal wildlife trafficking. Um, and uh, we are modeling our system uh, based on uh, human face recognition systems. However, we customize it specifically for certain species and primates. Uh, we have demonstrated our approach to be very effective against a few species uh, within primates, uh, such as uh, lemurs, golden monkeys, and chimpanzees. 
so how a face recognition or primate face recognition would work is that we first capture the images of primates um, e either using a smartphone camera or we can set up camera traps in uh, conservations. Uh, and then uh, our uh, in-house uh, face recognition system will extract salient and robust face features that can autom automatically match um, uh, primates and then or identify who this primate is from a database of uh, a large database of primates. Uh, and it will also provide us some sort of um, probability based evidence to say, yes, uh, the, the computer is, you know, let's say 98% sure that these two primates are uh, the same. So now I will hand off to my colleague, Tanya. She would talk a little bit more about our final solution that we're trying to build here. Thank you, Dipayan. So our model achieves a state of art accuracy in individualizing the certain species like lemurs, chimpanzees, and golden monkeys. Basically performs extremely fast inference. I have tested it myself and uh, I've been working on it. So yeah, and it takes a few more megabytes for storage. And uh, for a mobile application, it would be even less. So with the help of that application, it would be easy for authorities in charge to keep a check on the trafficking. And it could be really helpful in tracking, tracking and monitoring wildlife non-invasively. That's a key point here. Thank you, that's uh, all from Lens's side. Great, thanks everybody. Um, that's fascinating and actually jumped across a number of different fields there um, from AI to Facebook uh, to internet scraping all of which raise uh, a number of different questions, I think, that um, I'm fairly confident people in the audience might want to interrogate us on. And please do, as we say. So if I could ask all of the panelists to turn uh, their cameras on, please, that would be fantastic. We already have a few questions that have popped up in Q&A, and I will just run through those to give people time to raise their hand or put additional questions uh, in the box for us uh, today. So just to remind you of some of the questions that have been asked if you haven't been able to monitor the Q&A. So Moazu was asking about how do we scrape the dark web or if we scrape the dark web and whether we use Cascade to do that. And someone's response was, as you can sort of see here, is that you know there isn't a huge amount of, um, of evidence that, that trade is shifting onto the dark web in this particular market. Um, partly because um, the, the online trade on the open net is so, so prevalent that actually um, it kind of negates the need for it to, to go there. And then there's a question there about coded language as well that Teo has responded to. Carol, you've also asked a question um, around for Wahyu talking about sort of strong cultural connections with the illegal wildlife trade. How difficult is that to shift and I might actually ask Simon to have a go at that, answering that question as well. Um, Wahyu has also put in some thoughts there, which is super helpful. Thank you. Um, and then Fiona, thank you so much for coming. It's nice to hear from you. And it's good you saying that the Cascade tool is making some progress and getting results. Yep. And so there's the response there from uh, Simon on that in terms of then what we're doing about these results, because that's the most important thing in some respects. It's all well and good finding all of this data, as Simon mentioned. But what are we then actually doing about it? So, Simon, can I hand over to you a little bit to talk a bit more in detail, um, understanding uh, some of these uh, processes are relatively new to us. 
Um, but again, you know, and ask some questions to the audience as well about where they think our disruption efforts should be focused. But if you can talk a bit about disruption and what it means to us, please. Yeah, um, thanks everyone for the for the questions. Um, and yeah, thanks to the other panelists um, for your presentations. Um, I, I think that this question about what to do about what we're finding online is a really interesting one right now. Um, I know there, there, there are a couple of people in the audience who have worked uh, in different enforcement capacities or with NGOs who've been following this issue for a long time. And I think that there, um, several organizations have been sort of raising the alarm about online markets for now almost two decades. I think some of the first traffic surveys of online markets were in the early 2000s. So it's really not a new issue. Um, and there has been progress. Um, there has been, you know, big tech companies are part of a coalition with other uh, large and important NGOs um, that are concerned with illegal trade. There's been work uh, done to, you know, enforce keyword bans on people's searches, etc. Um, I think to an extent, though, um, that work is both important and effective because, as has been mentioned, you know, a lot of this content is extremely blatant. People are making the subject line, you know, buy endangered parrot. So if you set up a search, uh, a word ban on, you know, endangered parrot, that's 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 a good a good, a good measure to put in place. But there's also um, an extent to which some of this is 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 the low hanging fruit. Um, of really shifting the dynamics of uh, how these platforms can be used. And there's also, I think, it, it, what is emerging is that um, in the online space, um, a lot of the actions taken by e-commerce platforms have been, I think, more effective at reducing the amount of content. Um, we have some of that data from the Indonesia study where we did search e-commerce platforms in Indonesia and the comparison of what we found um, on places like Tokopedia versus Facebook is just, you know, astounding. In, in three months, I think it was something like 30 advertisements on Tokopedia versus a thousand on social media. Um, and in part, that may be because uh, e-commerce companies are more fully embracing the fact that they are in the business of selling things, um, whereas uh, there's an extremely complicated conversation about what social media companies are and um, what responsibilities they do and don't have. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it's something I've been thinking about, especially in relation to um, uh, Wahi's work where um, uh, we were monitoring Facebook groups and the degree to which we could find it, species we had chosen because it, they were so clearly um, uh, linked to sort of high levels of protection, um, as opposed to there is also an extremely large um, songbird market in Indonesia, which is also has high levels of illegality, but there are um, uh, more ambiguities around determining that, that legality. Um, and uh, groups were being shut down in part because uh, one of the uh, uh, traffic was signaling to Facebook that there was illegal trade in various bird species and having groups shut down. We don't know if that accounts for all the closures, but in general, what we find is that um, you know, enforcement is very driven by uh, NGOs um, who are monitoring trade and, and who are raising the alarm. And that the internal uh, 
enforcement procedures are, are inadequate. And with Facebook, a lot of this comes down to just being able to signal according to their community standards that um, content is problematic. Um, we have for a long time thought that closing groups would be very effective because it, it creates friction for, for traders who then have to reestablish um, and have lost this kind of um, cultivated community of consumers. But in the context of Indonesia, where there were dozens and dozens and dozens of Facebook groups um, with thousands of members um, and just constant uh, trade, um, we found that the new groups would be set up and then would attract you know, hundreds of new members a week and then very quickly become large again. And I think uh, you know, it, it is partly um, still mysterious to us how they were able to do that. Um, but one hypothesis is that um, uh, while it appears that they're all moderated by, you know, mostly moderated by different people, that that's not the case and that there are keynotes and certain people who can sort of direct that reformation of the consumer base. Um, uh, and as NGOs, we're, we're really uh, limited in our ability to, to investigate if that's the case, but the platform is not. Um, but it requires a much more sophisticated enforcement strategy to ask those questions about how the markets are, are functioning. Um, and I think a lot of the disruption challenge is about, um, I suppose, A, being able to measure um, and, and understand the effect of, uh, you know, what are the suggested measures to, to curb these markets, um, but also to, to push uh, really key actors to be adopting enforcement strategies that are adequate instead of just sort of possible within the frame of reference of their business models. Thanks, Mum. You did you touch a bit more on um, there was a question there about behaviour change uh, that was posted to to Wahoo in terms of some of those kind of the the broad term in which we see the word disruption, if you like, or friction? Yeah, I I think that that's a it's already important question that in a lot of the, the GIs and illicit flows work, uh, I mean, it's, there are a lot of overlaps between illicit and illicit trade. There are a lot of companies that are engaging in illicit trade um, in circumstances where uh, if they were held to account, they might just be illicit trade companies. Um, there's a certain amount of opportunism um, that comes into rather than, you know, people being dedicated to uh, trading a species to extinction or dedicated to another type of crime. crime. And uh, for consumers, there's also um, not always, a well, very often not a huge understanding of what's illegal and what isn't. Um, uh, we're currently tendering for um, a consultant to work with on, on engaging in uh, sort of behavior change interventions, which would, uh, you know, might possibly try to raise awareness of illegality or not, if that's counterproductive, because some of the research does say it can be, um, but otherwise shift norms within the communities around um, uh, how consumption happens. Uh, and I think one of the opportunities that the internet creates is that uh, there is this opportunity to identify consumers and to engage with them about uh, the effects of the choices that they're making. Um, uh, and that's something that we're, we're actively exploring. Thanks, Simon. 
I can't see any other live questions at the moment, and I think people are a bit shy to raise their hands, but I would uh, strongly encourage you to do so because we'd really like this to be a discussion. You don't have to ask a question. You're also very welcome to just comment on some of the things um, that you're hearing today. Um, there is one that's just popped in. Let me have a look from Ali. Um, hi, everyone. Very interesting presentation. A question for Wahyu about Indonesia. To what extent has the Indonesian government responded to the issue of the illegal wildlife trade? So I'll ask Wahyu to respond to that. But then I'd also like to ask Teo to comment in terms of some of those results that you mentioned, Teo, in terms of finding um, you know, evidences across multiple jurisdictions and whether we've had any success uh, with our engagement on that front. But Wahyu first, please. Okay. Thank you, Ali, for the questions. To what extent the Indonesian government responds to the issue of IWT? Well, uh, actually, the Indonesian government has uh, started to work hard to respond to this uh, illegal wildlife trade. There's, uh, as, as long as I know, they have already uh, working well in terms of the what is the trafficking or the seizure, but. For the internet, for the online trade, I think it is the lack of the uh, of the policy because until now there's no clear regulations for the how to work in the internet on the online platform, and they still focus on the common uh, goods like yeah for 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 common market, but but. Us to exclude the the potentials of 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 uh, illegal or species or illegal wildlife to be uh, uh, involved in the market. So for non-internet market, I think the government have already worked, but for the internet platform, still lack of this one. Interesting. Um- Teo, I'd like your reflections too, and then I'm going to ask Deb to respond. But then Simon, actually, I might come to you at the end to also then give a comment on um, on the kind of that angle that Yuahu's talking about in terms of government action on the illegal wildlife trade. But are we seeing it in the online spaces and in the cyber domain? Teo, first on the pangolins, please. Well, yeah, uh, thanks a lot, Luis. Uh, I'm actually going to answer several questions at once because someone in the chat, I'm forgetting the name, sorry, actually mentioned if we, what we do with these detections and with the intelligence we gather during um, our research. So, I mean, the, the whole point of the global initiative is not only to research, but also to have some real world impact. And the intelligence we collect is m- most of the time, if not always, uh, sent to either law enforcement agencies or um, can be used as part of our private uh, sector engagement um, efforts. Um, when it comes to law, uh, liaising with law enforcement agencies, uh, we do we have had a very positive experience, uh, especially on the pangolin uh, on the pangolin study, because some of the uh, some of the illicit activity we detected took place in jurisdictions such as Europe, European countries, the UK or the US, which are relatively easy targets for us when it comes to um, when it comes to living with other countries that do not have the same um, transparency or the same or people are much harder to uh, to contact and to uh, liaise with. 
the results are not always that um, present. But we are, we are. I mean, we are not giving up on that, of course, and we will be continuing our efforts, uh, especially next year, on on that front. We have had uh, some strong, more strong success with, with private sector engagements. Um, not so much on the Bengalian study because it's still uh, developing, but on uh, a previous study that has been done on African grey parrots traded online, especially in Africa. So we have been able to have several companies uh, deleting, I don't remember actually, Simon might know, but more than thousands of uh, links from their websites. And we are also engaging with one uh, another company that is very well uh, implemented in Africa. Uh, that is going to completely change its uh, wildlife trade uh, policy, thanks to our, I mean, due to our efforts, research efforts and continuing private sector engagement with them. So it's not necessarily perfect in the sense that they don't necessarily go the way uh, we want them to go, but they are, um, it's still a, a significant improvement from having, from being a completely unregulated actor and selling basically any kind of, of animal online. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that, Teo. And thanks for bringing in some of those, actually, as you say, initial successes from the African Grey Parrot engagement as well. Deb and Tanya, do you have any views on, you know, what's your experience been in terms of engaging with governments and law enforcement agencies around your work and what's their reactions? Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for the question. Uh, so uh, for the for the longest part, the hardest uh, issue that we had to actually deal with was actually uh, you know, the in the realm of primate face recognition or, or for any animal for that matter, uh, there is a very, it's a very challenging problem in itself because it's really hard to come across uh, data to train these uh, artificial intelligence systems. So the first kind of uphill battle that we had to uh, uh, like fight was to find some data and even there, you know, how do we train these AI models to generalize with looking at very few individual animals that we have uh, data for? Uh, so um, that being said, uh, we have worked with, um, uh, there was a case, a few cases here and there. There was one in Kathmandu. Uh, so we worked with uh, Project to End Great Ape Slavery, Pegas, um, Daniel Stiles from there. Uh, so we've been dealing with a few cases here and there where what we do here is that they submit some photos to us. We run it through our uh, automatic, automatic uh, face recognition system for primates, and then we provide the results back to them. Uh, and then they work on more of the uh, other parts, other side of the uh, problem. So they're more aware of you know, what happened with those results. Uh, but uh, I, I believe what uh, we are trying to do now is going to be one of the, uh, let's say, toughest challenges. But then this would be, um, I would have better data in, in some time because what we're trying to do right now is to generalize our systems to accommodate for let's say any primate species or other animals. So we're trying to make this system more generalizable to um, lots of different species. So that way, you know, some, there's a new case that's not, let's say primates, even some sea lions uh, or something or the other. Uh, so then our system can still adapt to that new species very quickly uh, with very limited data, let's say, uh, and then still be able to uh, give some evidence. So we're basically at the early stages, but um, we're, uh, I, I think this is, you know, such a uh, important but niche uh, field. Thanks, um, Simon. Are you able to 
sort of give a sort of broader perspective in terms of what is the kind of legal framework that exists or doesn't around these things and what are the kind of bigger challenges here? Thanks, Louise. Yeah, um, that's a really a big picture question. Um, I think, you know, when we when we try to locate this problem uh, sort of in the broader landscape of development issues and, and organized crime issues, um, it, it becomes very clear that it sits in between um, sort of two different, uh, I would say, systemic challenges. Um, one are the legal frameworks around uh, the environment, uh, wildlife, wildlife crime. Um, I think there's been uh, massive development uh, of those laws in, in a number of jurisdictions um, uh, over the last 10 years, particularly since the protein crisis. But they're still very uneven uh, and fragmented, and they're often poorly understood by the uh, actors who would, you know, have some responsibility towards them, whether that's private sector or that's uh, law enforcement. Um, uh, it's, you know, even the Secretary General of the UN has said that um, uh, legal frameworks around the environment are fragmented and incoherent. Um, the other one is around uh, cyberspace, so that this is both uh, the sort of current global slightly deadlocked issue around um, cybercrime and how different uh, countries understand what it is and want to respond to it. And it's also, um, you know, these issues that also different parts of the world are grappling with differently around uh, the fact that uh, technology companies have become the biggest companies in the world. They have a lot of power and um, uh, they uh, are currently under a lot of fire for being poorly regulated around a whole range of online harms. Um, and there are uh, big, essentially political debates, um, which uh, for which policy hasn't already, you know, hasn't already formed around what their roles and responsibilities are. Um, and the issue of online trafficking of wildlife falls in between these two because it creates a, a really muddied picture of uh, jurisdiction, responsibility, mandate, and um, that is an underlying problem to uh, really making it a priority for governments and for law enforcement um, and really um, you know, shifting the private sector response from we will generously uh, perform this act of self-regulation to um, we have a liability here. That means that we have to invest in taking action. Yeah. And as we know, that's part of a much, much bigger, uh, almost sometimes geopolitical uh, debate. So it's interesting how sometimes these things just can fall through the cracks of these um, of these much bigger issues. Um Thank you so much to everybody on the panel. Uh, we do have an additional um, 15 minutes, but I don't see any additional questions in the Q&A or any raised hands. And sorry if I'm being incompetent, it's entirely possible. Um, but if, you, if there are um, any sort of final questions, we do have time for one or two more, but equally I'm not going to drag this out if, um, if we have kind of exhausted everybody already at this time of the morning. Um, I will take the opportunity then to thank you very much for coming and for listening to us and for, um, you know, giving us the opportunity to share some of these insights and the challenges that we're facing uh, with you. We're really grateful. Please stay in touch. You can reach us at mmfu at globalinitiative.net. I sound like an advert. Um, I'm going to be regulated by an e-commerce platform shortly, I hope. Um, but it was really nice to, to get to know some of you uh, through the chat. And please do stay in touch. And thank you, panellists. Have a great day. All the best. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.